I have never written a book. And whether or not I will ever fulfill that dream remains to be seen. But I was thinking of how much time authors must spend on first sentences. Those initial words that are an invitation to the reader to keep going. In fact, I discovered one best-selling author attests to spending months, even years, writing opening sentences, and in his words, attributed to the success of the entire book to these first few words. Now, as important as the beginning of a book is, so too must be the ending of one. Surely writers agonize over the closing line, the final thought, the lasting impression they wish to make on the reader who has persevered to the end. On that theme, here are some of what have been called the most powerful and poignant closing lines from literature. So we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. It's from the great Gatsby. Here's another. But wherever they go, and whatever happens to them on the way, in that enchanted place on the top of the forest, a little boy and his bear will always be playing the house at Pooh Corner. It is not often that someone comes along who's a true friend and a good writer. Charlotte was both. Charlotte's Web. And some of you will know this, no doubt. God is in his heaven. All is right with the world. And of Green Gables. If you've read any of those books, hearing those final sentences may stir memories of the story in your mind. And this morning, having heard the final passage of the book of Acts, I wish to highlight by way of introduction, the final word of the book in the hopes that it will embed in our minds. With respect to Luke, the human author, it is aptly chosen. With respect to the Holy Spirit, the divine author, we know it was breathed out by God. And what's significant about the final word in the book of Acts is that it comes on the heels of all of the twists and turns of providence that are traced out by Luke in his careful historical research. Through his writing of Acts, we learned that the early church encountered many obstacles. There were language barriers, cultural barriers, ethnic barriers, geographical barriers. The believers suffered threats and beatings and imprisonments and stoning and even beheadings. Politics got in the way. So did economics and disunity and greed and unbelief and demonic forces get in the way of the, local, the, the early church. Yet throughout, Luke demonstrates with an exclamation mark in conclusion that in the end, no matter what, when all is said and done, we proclaim a gospel that is unhindered, period, End of story, the gospel will go where God wants it to go, and nothing can stop it. Listen again to the last line of Acts. Paul lived there in Rome two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Though he's under house arrest, chained to a Roman soldier, in the end, no matter what, when all is said and done, we proclaim a gospel that is unhindered, which I hope will, and pray will stoke our evangelistic boldness and endurance. The advance of the good news about Jesus cannot be stopped, which ought to spur us on with courage and zeal to make him known. 
We proclaim a gospel that is unhindered, which stokes our evangelistic boldness and endurance. And this despite three final obstacles in Luke's account. And we're going to look at them in turn. And I hope that through them you are convinced to indeed see that the gospel that we proclaim is without hindrance. And may God use this to overcome any doubt that we might have brought in here with us this morning. Some of you might be facing hostility to the gospel under your own roofs or in the places where you go to work or where you go to school. Sometimes it seems like the influence of the world is like a tsunami that threatens to overwhelm us and we're not sure how any further progress can be made as we look around at this world in which we live. Despite all of that, I hope that you are convinced and encouraged and emboldened to press on. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I'm sure it is a great delight as it is to my heart that you are here and that you're listening to this. I hope that you are convinced that because of this gospel being unhindered that you should believe it yourself. And you ought to. And a little bit more on that later on. Let's come to the text, picking up in verse 17. Not much time passes with Paul in Rome before strides are taken to share the gospel. First, to his fellow Jews. In verses 17 to 19, we have a brief recap of the two-year period of Paul's arrest in Jerusalem and his eventful harrowing journey to Rome. In this exchange, our boldness and endurance is stoked by the following, we proclaim a gospel that is unhindered despite injustice. The gospel cannot be stopped by unfair, harsh treatment of gospel ambassadors. Knowing we proclaim a gospel that is unhindered despite injustice stokes our evangelistic boldness and endurance. That's what Paul learned. Even though he was doing the greatest good that he ever could, which was telling people about Jesus, he got into trouble with the people who said they followed the Old Testament and yet didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He calls together the local leaders of the Jews in Rome and he tells them in verse 17, brothers, Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. We well know that injustices will be perpetrated against Christians by people who seriously believe they are serving God. Sometimes devoutly religious people are the worst offenders. With the persecuted church in mind, I've poured over many accounts of brothers and sisters in the past and the present who were unjustly treated by Muslims and Hindus and archbishops and communists who are as zealous for their religion as any other. I'm going to read a story in a moment, but notice how injustice can come not only at the hands of religious zeal, but also civil authority. Paul goes on to say in verse 18, when they, that is the Romans, had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty. They wanted to set him free because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. Surprisingly, the Jews in Rome reply in verse 21, saying, we, we don't know why you're talking about, Paul. We've got no letters. No one's come, hadn't reported or spoken evil about you. 
And so whether the Jews in Jerusalem drop the case, not having the desire or the money to pursue it all the way to Rome, or whether Paul just beat the news because it was winter when they were traveling, we don't know. What we do know is that despite the injustice leading to Paul's arrival in Rome as a prisoner, there is an open door for the gospel when he gets there. The Jews are curious. That would have been expensive. (laughs) This is what they say in verse 22. We desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Unfair treatment of gospel ambassadors cannot hinder the gospel from going where God intends it to go. Listen to how that plays out in the story of a man by the name of Walter Milne, the last Scottish martyr who was put to death at 82 years of age. He was a parish priest. He heard the gospel and was converted. He was put into prison for his beliefs, but he escaped. He hid for a while and then began to preach again, and he was forced into hiding a second time, but finally he was captured and he was tried for heresy at the age of 82. At his trial, he was so feeble because of his age and the mistreatment that he suffered in prison that he even couldn't climb the platform. Nevertheless, when he began to speak, he made the courtroom sing with such courage and power that the Christians who were present rejoiced. One by one, his beliefs were examined, and he did not give in. The archbishop's priest, whose name was Oliphant, sentenced Milne to be burned as a heretic. But his boldness and faith had so moved the heart of the mayor that he refused to be his judge. In fact, the whole town was so offended with his unfair sentence that they refused to sell the bishop a single rope or a single barrel of tar. After much delay, everything was ready. And when Oliphant uh, ordered him to climb up to the stake, he refused. And he says, no, by the law of God, I am forbidden to kill myself. But if you will put me up there and take part in my death, I will go up gladly. And so they lifted him up to the stake. And Milne, this old man, said, Dear friends, I do not suffer today for any crime, but only for the defense of the faith of Jesus Christ as set forth in the Old and New Testaments. As other faithful martyrs have offered themselves gladly, knowing that they will receive eternal joy, I praise God today that he has called me also to seal up his truth with my life. I have received this life from him, and I will willingly offer it for his glory. If you too would escape eternal death, depend only on Jesus Christ and his mercy, that you may be delivered from eternal judgment. When he spoke, the crowd mourned. The fire was lit, and he cried, Lord, have mercy on me. Pray, people, while there is time. Pride was greatly stirred and moved by his words and prayers. Their hearts were so inflamed by his death that thousands joined him in his faith. So many declared themselves willing to die for their beliefs that the Scottish government re-examined their views on executing so-called heretics. And after the death of Walter Milne, no one else was put to death for their faith in Scotland. Undaunted by the religious fervor of the archbishop or the civil magistrate, Milne was bold in his proclamation of a gospel that is unhindered by injustices at the hands of both. That's what we see here in Paul. And as a result, the gospel continues to gain ground. 
holding fast to the same unhindered gospel, let us not hold back, trusting that opportunity will unfold even if the circumstances seem dire. Time will tell whether we will feel heat on the basis of something like Bill C-4 in our country. But do not despair, brothers and sisters. The Lord may even yet use this as an opportunity for more people to hear the good news about Jesus Christ. Paul is in chains. And yet, the Jews check their calendars. And they land on a date to come back to the place of Paul's house arrest in greater numbers, as verse 23 tells us. And here we encounter a second obstacle with enormous potential to take the the wind out of our evangelistic sails, and it's the obstacle of unbelief. Yet knowing that we proclaim a gospel that is unhindered even by that should stoke our evangelistic boldness and endurance. Though we will encounter, and no doubt you have, those who refuse to be persuaded, we need not lose heart. Knowing we proclaim a gospel unhindered by unbelief stokes our evangelistic boldness and endurance. For an entire day, the text tells us, Paul preaches and teaches from cover to cover of the Old Testament, aiming to persuade the Jews that Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of the law of Moses and the prophets. He's imitating, is he not, the conversation that Jesus had with the two on the road to Emmaus, showing how Jesus checks all the boxes of what was written about the Messiah to come, where he was born, his family line, how he would teach, the miracles he would perform, the death that he would die, the resurrection victory he would accomplish, the manner of his rule and his reign. You know, if, if, you're, if you're someone who is uh, on the skeptical side of things, you're investigating Christianity, or maybe this will even be helpful if you're talking with someone who is, someone has, has done the math on the chances of Jesus fulfilling all of the prophecies that were made about him in the Old Testament. And they, they visualize it this way. Imagine the province of Ontario was covered with toonies up to your shins. And you marked one toonie in the entire province. And then you invited someone to put on a blindfold and you sent them out into the province and said you get one chance, one opportunity to pick the marked toonie. That's the same probability of Jesus, of someone fulfilling all of the Old Testament prophecies that were made and Jesus ticks every single box. And that's what Paul is saying to the Jews. He's the one that we've been reading about and waiting for and longing for this whole time. But like their fellow Jewish leaders in other areas, they responded the same way Isaiah was told people would to his preaching when God gave him his job description hundreds of years earlier. That's what Paul quotes in Acts 28, verses 26 and 27, which, by the way, is referenced in all four Gospels in Jesus' assessment of the Jewish response to him personally. Now let's get in our time machines for a moment and travel back to the first century to understand just how problematic the response of the Jews is to Paul's preaching and teaching and persuasion. The very people who should be most open to Jesus are most hostile to him instead. There is, as Ben Witherington puts it, 
a dark theme of rejection of the gospel by many Jews, especially by Jewish leaders, starting in Jerusalem. And Rome is apparently no different. Witherington goes on. Luke does not seek to gild the lily here. He's not trying to cook the historical books and fudge the numbers. He presents a mixed conclusion to Acts. One part triumph, with the gospel being proclaimed unhindered in the capital, but also one part great tragedy, with many Jews, indeed the majority of the Jewish people and its leadership, rejecting the gospel which was intended for them first and foremost. This raises a credibility issue, does it not? How are we to account for this seeming failure of the gospel? What theological understanding are we to bring to bear on this? And how does this help us recover from the devastation that we experience when we share the gospel with people, with prayers and tears, and people just plain refuse to believe? Well, verse 27, quoting Isaiah 6.10, provides us with the answer. The problem lies not with the gospel message. The problem lies in the hardness of the human heart. A callousness that results in deafness and blindness to the truth of who Jesus of Nazareth is. Why do people refuse to believe? Because they harden their heart. But, you might ask, is God not able to overcome this? Does God stand idly by, wringing his hands, impotent to quicken the hearts of people to hear and see and therefore believe? Is he hanging me out to dry when I share the gospel with my family member or friend or co-worker when they refuse to believe? What is going on here? Well, no, of course not. People hardening their heart is not the only answer as to, to why the gospel is rejected. God, who is under no obligation to be gracious, does also. In the letter that Paul wrote to Rome, he deals with this very topic of the Jewish rejection of Jesus. And in summary of Romans 9-11, to he writes in Romans 9-6, It is not as though the word of God has failed. As God said to Moses, Romans 9, 15-16, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Does this mean that God has abandoned the Jewish people in their unbelief? Well, no. To this, Paul responds, by no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Paul goes on to say, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, that is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. What then, Paul asks? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. And he's quoting the scriptures again. This is from Romans 11. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, done to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. 
I mean, sure, why did the Jews reject the gospel? On the one hand, because of their spiritual hardness of heart and their spiritual blindness. On the other hand, because God hardened and blinded them to the truth. But why would God do this? Romans 11, 11 and Acts 28, 28 correspond to one another. Romans 11, 11 and Acts 28, 28. Paul writes to Rome saying, so I ask, did Israel stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. The end of the book of Acts is the pattern of the book of Acts. The gospel goes into the synagogues. And some Jews believe, many Jews are hardened, and then the gospel goes to the Gentiles. It ends as it's been going all the way through, even Jesus' ministry. And so Paul says, to Rome, therefore, let it be known to you that this, uh, sorry, he says in Acts, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Derek Thomas writes, and I quote, God's purpose for now, Paul is saying, lies largely with the Gentiles. But God has not abandoned the Jews entirely. As Paul would conclude his section in Romans 9 to 11, there will come a time when all Israel will be saved. In saying this, Paul hasn't written the Jews off because God has not written the Jews off. If you notice in verse 30, jumping down just for a moment, it tells us that the apostle welcomed all who came to him, and I would understand that to include both interested Jew and interested Gentile. But here, Paul is purposefully highlighting their hardness of heart as well as the spread of the gospel of, to all nations, to get under the skin of the Jews so that they would long for the salvation that came to them first as God's covenant people. If only you would turn, God would heal you. But because you haven't, God is healing the Gentiles in Jesus' name. He was promised to you first, and you're missing out on this salvation action. So quit hearing and not understanding. Quit looking and not seeing. Quit hearing, but not listening. But even, brothers and sisters, when we meet people who do, this text is inviting us to press on despite unbelief because God will save others. You notice how unfazed Paul is by unbelief because he has a true stubbornness of the human heart. His used to be one and because he has a true understanding of the work of God in saving people. Recognizing the hardness of the human heart and unbelief and the sovereignty of God and grace will stoke our boldness and endurance in proclaiming this unhindered gospel. The gospel we proclaim is a gospel for the nations and the unbelief of one nation does not hinder the gospel breaking grounds with different nations globally. The Gentiles have listened. And while it is absolutely discouraging at times to encounter hardened unbelief, every morning, most mornings of my life, I think about this when I wake up, every morning when we wake up and Christ has not come, do you know what this means? It means it's a day of grace. 
It's a day where Jesus Christ tarries so that Iranians and Filipinos and Jamaicans and Canadians and Russians can hear the gospel and believe and have eternal life. And through us, his people, God sends the gospel where he wills. And whether it melts the coldness of one heart or bakes the clay of another heart, Wherever the heat and light of the gospel goes, the unhindered gospel does its work. By all means, when we encounter hardened unbelief, we should participate in Paul's great sorrow and unceasing anguish, which he writes about in Romans 9, verses 2 to 3. He says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Cry out to God for the sake of those who are ethnically Jewish who have rejected their Messiah. Cry out for those you particularly long to be saved with that same posture of Jesus who lamented over Jerusalem and he said he would have gathered them up as a mother hen would gather her chicks under her wings. And again, if you are listening to this and you are not a Christian, maybe you are a young man or woman, you're growing up in a Christian home, do you not know and understand the prayers and tears of mom and dad or maybe grandparents or pastors and elders for your salvation? Please do not harden your heart any longer. Unbelief is eternally tragic. It's a horrendous evil in its rejection of God and his gospel. Would you not lay down arms today and trust in Christ and know fellowship with God as your Father and with his Son and with the Holy Spirit? And as you think about that, Christian, in the lives of those that you know, people who reject the gospel, Don't be ashamed to weep and to mourn and to fast and to pray in light of unbelief. But at the same time, do not be dissuaded from sharing the gospel as though the message were at fault. It isn't. The nations have listened. I mean, here we are in Georgetown, Ontario, praising the name of Jesus Christ, a message which began in Jerusalem and is going to the ends of the earth. Can God not repeat the miracle of regeneration in the lives of others as he has in us? Of course he can. Now, in saying all of this, If it feels like you're lost in a theological labyrinth, trying to find your way through the mystery of how it is that humans are responsible for their unbelief when God is sovereign in salvation, which is what we're getting here from Paul, from Isaiah, if you're trying to work your way through that maze, the next 60 seconds are going to be crucial. Perhaps your whole life, you've been trying to figure out how to cut this seemingly Gordian knot and make sense of it all. Uh, I'm going to be so bold, uh, even as a guest preacher, to say here's the answer that you've been looking for. 
It's from Romans 11, 33-35. Here's the answer to this theological puzzle. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. When we're stumped in the face of gospel rejection and wondering how it all fits together with human responsibility and divine sovereignty, there comes a point when doxology, when worship is our only fitting response. And from this place, we continue to witness because the gospel we proclaim is unhindered despite injustice, it is unhindered despite unbelief. People came to hear Paul preach and teach. The gospel began to spread through the guards who were rotated and being changed, chained to Paul as they listened, and no doubt he talked with them. And this brings us to the third obstacle, but at the same time, this brings us to the third boldness and endurance stoking truth from the final verses of Acts. The gospel that we proclaim is unhindered despite locks and chains. Injustice can't stop it, unbelief can't stop it, locks and chains can't stop it, and knowing this stokes our evangelistic boldness and endurance. Following his encounter with the Jews, Paul remains under minimum security, house arrest, for two years. So by this point, he's been in custody for four years. Now it's at his own expense, and again, we read these final words of the book of Acts, he welcomed all who came to him. Living as an ambassador under the glorious reign of the Lord Jesus Christ as a citizen of the kingdom of God does not restrict Paul's tongue even though his movements were. Other Christians have experienced the same despite locks and chains. Here's another account from the annals of the persecuted church of a story of Maria and Varia, 18-year-olds who were friends from the USSR in the 1960s. Maria asked through the iron bars, Varia, don't you regret what you did? No, she answered. And if they would free me, I would do it again and tell them about the great love of Jesus. Don't think that I suffer. I'm very glad that the Lord loves me so much and gives me the joy to endure for his name. This was the first conversation that Maria and Varia had had in prison. The first time that Maria had been able to visit Varia in prison. Her friend was thin, pale, beaten, but her eyes shone with the peace of God and an unearthly joy. The two girls had been teenagers, friends, schoolmates in a communist boarding school. And Varia, a member of the communist youth organization, had constantly teased and tormented Maria, a Christian. In response, Maria prayed for the young communists with special concern. And one day, this non-Christian girl said to her friend, I cannot understand what a being you are. Here so many insult you and hurt you, and yet you love everyone. Maria said, God has taught us to love everyone, not only friends, but also enemies. And so Varia asked, can you love me too? Maria hugged her, and they both began to weep. And not long after this, Varia received Jesus as her personal Savior and witnessed openly to everyone about it. Shortly afterward, Maria wrote to her parents, 
saying we went together to the assembly of the godless, which is what they called the school's communist youth club meeting. I warned her to be reserved, but it was useless. I went with her to see what would happen. After they sang their communist hymn, Varia come forward before the whole assembly and courageously with much feeling, she witnessed to those who were gathered about Jesus, her Savior, and she implored all to give up the way of sin and come to Christ. I'm sure you can imagine, you could have heard a pin drop. It was dead silent. When she finished speaking, she sang with a beautiful voice the words of the Christian hymn, I am not ashamed to proclaim the Christ who died to defend his commandments and the power of his cross. They took her away because of this. Months passed after their single visit in prison and then Maria received a letter from her friend who was in a Siberian labor camp. This is what Varia writes. My heart praises and thanks God that through you he showed me the way to salvation. Now being on this way, my life has purpose and I know where to go and for whom I suffer. I feel the desire to tell and to witness to everybody about the great joy of salvation that I have in my heart. Who can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Nobody and nothing, neither prison nor suffering. The sufferings that God sends us only strengthen us more and more in the faith in Him. My heart is so full that the grace of God overflows. I work They curse and punish me, giving me extra work because I cannot be silent. I must tell everyone what the Lord has done for me. He has made me a new being, a new creation of me who is in the way of perdition. Can I be silent after this? No, never. As long as my lips can speak, I will witness to everyone about his great love. And this is what's so striking as she writes this last portion about what's happening in this Siberian labor camp. Here there are many who believe in Christ. More than half of the prisoners are believers. We have among us great singers and good preachers of the gospel. In the evening, when we all gather after heavy work, how wonderful it is to pass at least some time together in prayer at the feet of our Savior. With Christ, there is freedom everywhere. Brothers and sisters, what locks and chains What restrictions that we will encounter could constrain this work of God, this reign of Christ being announced of this gospel going forth? Varia in a labor camp, Paul in a Roman prison, the gospel is unhindered. And to fully appreciate the wonder of this final word, we do well to remember Luke's opening words as well. I'm sure you know Acts begins as follows. Luke writes, In the first book, O Theophilus, the gospel, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. The implication here is that book two is all about what Jesus continues to do, advancing the kingdom of God by the Spirit through the church. And Luke goes on, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so at the beginning of Acts, Jesus is in Jerusalem with the disciples, speaking to them about the kingdom of God, which has come in himself. And then at the end of the book of Acts, Paul is in Rome. And though he is in prison, he is welcoming everyone, proclaiming what? The kingdom of God. And teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with what? 
all boldness and without hindrance. This is Luke's final summary statement. Paul is in chains, but the word of God is not bound. And that's why he could write to the Philippians and say, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak and without fear. And then he signs off this letter. You know, sometimes we should pay more attention to the sort of opening and beginning sections of letters. We maybe just glaze over those. But Paul signs off this particular letter to the church in Philippi with these incredible words. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Did you catch that? Paul, though imprisoned as he is, Christ, by the Spirit, is empowering him to speak about the kingdom of God at the epicenter of the known world, right under Caesar's nose, which tells us that despite the language barriers and the cultural barriers and the ethnic ones and the geographical ones, the gospel advances. Amidst all of the threats and beatings, beatings and imprisonments and stonings and beheadings, nothing can thwart the spread of Jesus' reign. Politics can't get in the way of it. Religion can't get in the way of it. Neither can economics or culture or disunity or greed or unbelief or demonic forces. None of them can slow down the sovereign advance of the kingdom of God. Those are the obstacles that feature in the book of Acts, and they remain to this very day. And yes, they are significant. I don't want to romanticize them in any way. We should never, for their own sake, seek them out. That would be foolish but they are not determinative. They do not set the course of the gospel. God on his throne does, and that is what Luke wishes us to know. The gospel is unhindered. The gospel is unstoppable. But being honest, and I'll end with this, come to the end of the book of Acts, don't you feel a little bit shortchanged? Luke, page after page, you drew out this astonishing journey of Paul to Rome. A good chunk of your book is about that adventure. You bring us right to the brink of Paul getting where the Lord Jesus himself said he would go, and you're just going to cancel the series? Don't you hate that when your favorite television show is like, no, it's canceled? What happened when Paul went before Nero? We got volume one, we got volume two. What happened to volume three? Where's the to be continued? But we're not shortchanged at all. If this was a biography about Paul, yes, we would be. Luke would have left us hanging big time. But this is not a biography of the Apostle Paul. This is a theological story, history, showing us that Christ advances the same kingdom today by the same Spirit through his same people. As Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth and from Rome, the center of the earth at this point in history, the gospel goes forth. Does the book end abruptly? Yes, I believe it's purposeful. It ends abruptly because the Great Commission continues. It ends abruptly because there is still work to be done. 
If Luke had lived all of these 2,000 years, he could still be writing the book of Acts and it would still be incomplete because we're living in it this very moment. And what that means is this final word is also an invitation. It's an invitation to you and to me. It's an invitation to Hesper Baptist Church and to Maple Avenue Baptist Church to pick up the torch and carry the gospel forward in our generation with that final word ringing in our ears with victory and with promise unhindered. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would be pleased to bless the preaching and hearing of your word, that it would bear lasting fruit in each of our lives and in our churches. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a great longing to be used by you in this work that you are doing in this world to make much of your son who has the name that has been given, uh, he's been given the name that is above every name. A name at which one day every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord to your glory, Father. And I pray that you would give great confidence and endurance and zeal to my brothers and sisters as we scatter after we have gathered on a Sunday morning to go to the places where we live and work and play. That you would make us to be faithful ambassadors of the gospel, unashamed of the gospel, for it is your power for the salvation of everyone who believes. So, Lord, help us to bear it in our words and not undermine it by our lives that we might point to Jesus Christ, his rule and his reign, that others might enter into the kingdom of God by the work of your spirit. And so we added to our number, delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Oh, use this church, Lord, I pray, in mighty ways. I pray that they would even be stirred this evening as they gather again and hear about the ways that you are continuing to advance the gospel as they uh, hear about this missionary documentary, spend time in prayer and Q&A. Lord, I pray that this would stoke the flames of their zeal, that they would be used by you to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. So Lord, increase their ministry, I pray, and use them to see many come in. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.